Good morning, and welcome back to the Santa Cruz Baptist Podcast. Uh, my name is Tyler Hurst. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm here with Drew Cunningham, uh, the planting pastor, to discuss his sermon on Daniel chapter 4. Welcome back. So, Drew, why don't you start us off uh, by telling us what you wanted people to walk away with? Yeah, so Daniel chapter 4, if you're unfamiliar with the text, um, is the story of Nebuchadnezzar and kind of the end of his story in Daniel. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, he um, basically was the ruler of, of the world at that point, or the, the known world in, in the text anyway. Mm-hmm. And he uh, was very powerful and had all this influence and money and power. Um, and he uh, essentially has this dream in chapter four where there's this massive tree. Um, the tree gets cut down um, and this tree is wet with the dew of the grass and then becomes um, a beast eating the grass with the mind of the beast. Um, and then he uh, the it, it tells us that the stump and the roots are left of that tree. So he's perplexed by this. He calls in the Chaldeans and his wise men, essentially, to interpret the dream, and they can't do it. So he reluctantly calls Daniel in. Daniel interprets the dream and says, hey, essentially, the tree is you. You're going to be cut down, um, but there's an opportunity for you to be restored. Um, Nebuchadnezzar ignores Daniel's counsel for 12 whole months, so a full year. He's up on the top of his house, and he's proclaiming all of the great things that he has accomplished and done in Babylon, and God shows up and speaks to him, and he is humbled. Everything that Daniel told him was going to happen, happens. He um, goes and actually physically eats grass, becomes like a a cow out in a pasture, Um, and then he is humbled and looks up to heaven and is restored to his kingdom. And so um, that is the basic story of chapter four. And the main point uh, that I I repeated multiple different times throughout the the text, um, starting in verse 17, it says, the most high rules the kingdom of men. And so uh, that is what I want people to, to walk away with. That's what I believe the text wants us to walk away with is that the most high who is God, uh, the God that we worship as Christians, um, he rules the kingdom of men. Every other kingdom uh, is a lowercase k kingdom that is ultimately under um, the God of this universe. And that becomes apparent in the story of Nebuchadnezzar, that he is humbled by God um, and eventually comes to understand that truth, and um, then he's restored at the end. So that's um, basic understanding of, of the text and of the main point of that text. So Nebuchadnezzar essentially has this sort of Ecclesiastes 2 moment where he wakes up and he looks around him, and in Ecclesiastes 2, it's not uh, a foreign king, but it's it's at King Solomon mm-hmm. looking around at all this stuff, and he's he says things like, I planted forests, I dug wells so deep, or I dug uh, ravines so deep that now there are rivers where there weren't rivers before, and I, uh, I irrigated deserts, I got male and female slaves, um, but the famous line 
at the end of it is vanity of vanities. Everything is meaningless. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's Solomon speaking about all these accomplishments, which he did under his own power, because ultimately they were apart from God. And, mm-hmm. and similarly, Nebuchadnezzar's looking around going, he's actually making somewhat of an opposite point going, wow, I thought I had done all of these under my own power, but I only have this because of God. Right. And, and I think just in the context of the book of Daniel as a whole, um, I, I've been repetitive here, but this whole thing is taking place in the land of Shinar. Mm-hmm. And so, um, It is, you know, Shinar is where the Tower of Babel from Genesis 11 was built. Um, These people who are trying to make a name for themselves. Yeah. um, And God shows up and thwarts that and scatters them and gives them different languages. Um, And so the context of that throughout the book of Daniel is setting up this distinction between what I called and what uh, Augustine called the city of God and the city of man. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, here we have this on display that you've got Nebuchadnezzar who doesn't see what Solomon saw mm-hmm. um, in that I don't think he saw that it was vanity. Right. He's very stoked on what he has, has mm-hmm. produced. And he thinks that the city of man is is at least co-equal, if not above the city of God mm-hmm. uh, at this point. And so... Um, this whole concept of making a name for himself, he's doing the exact same thing that they did in Genesis 11. Right, right. In that way, those two points, the Ecclesiastes 2 and what Nebuchadnezzar realizes here are the sa- are two sides of the same coin, mm-hmm. right? Um, they're both trying to understand your work or one's accomplishments in light of uh, who God is and their relationship to him. Uh, and it's actually that that makes or at least presents me with sort of my first question uh, about your sermon and this text here is you pointed out in your your message that uh, essentially one of the main points is that uh, Nebuchadnezzar has to pass through humiliation to come to a place of humility uh, in order to be restored to his kingdom. Mm-hmm. And that that one of the primary emphases of this text is something we actually read all over Scripture, and it's that God humbles the proud. And you started off with reading a C.S. Lewis quote, which is really powerful, in which C.S. Lewis points out how we often don't necessarily think of ourselves as proud. We're, we're regularly seeing it in others without letting uh, ourselves reflect on our pride. And so I thought it would be helpful to sort of unpack uh, a little bit about that. Maybe if you've got the quote, uh, you could read it. And then um, just give a couple of ideas of how do we even assess when we're being prideful? Because I think we all read Nebuchadnezzar's story and being like, you know what? It would be fantastic to not have to get humiliated in order <laughs> to get to where God wants me. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I, I don't have the quote in front of me, but uh, it comes from Mere Christianity. And uh, it's where C.S. Lewis basically says that he believes that, that pride is the greatest sin. Mm-hmm. And he says that we often see it in others, but don't see it in ourselves. Right. And so the, the question you're asking is, okay, well, how do we see it in ourselves? Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, James 1 is a really good starting point for answering that. Um, James 1, you know, it says, James 1, 22, it says, but be doers of the word, 
and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Mm-hmm. So he's starting out saying it, it's possible to deceive yourself. Yeah. <laughs> even, even being a hearer of the word, you can deceive yourself. Um, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Mm. And then he goes on in verse 25 to say, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And so I think two things that I see there in answering that question, how do we not deceive ourselves? How do we actually see pride in ourselves? Um, one, it's understanding that that God's word is like James says it is. It's, it's a mirror. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can hold it up and look into it and see ourselves clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's, it's more than that. Um, what James' point is, is that we can't just be hearers of the word, but we have to be doers of it. And so I think, first of all, we must be hearers of the word. We must be regularly holding the, the word of God, the scriptures up and viewing ourselves rightly through it. Mm-hmm. Um, without that, we will never see pride in ourselves. Mm-hmm. If I'm just, you know, looking at, you know, the guy across the street from me, um, it's easy to think I'm awesome. Yeah. I, I made that point in the sermon. But when we look up at God, um, it, it's impossible if we see God rightly to think we're awesome. And so, well, how do we look up at God? We immerse ourselves in God's word like a mirror so that we can see ourselves clearly. Um, but James' second point is that we can't just do that. We actually have to apply God's word and be yeah. a doer of it. And so I think that's um, the more you read God's word and see God clearly, um, the more you understand your pride, but the more you try to live it out and to be a doer of the word, uh, your pride gets exposed. Yeah, I've been thinking about that this week. Um, as we've been preaching through the book of Daniel, I've been doing uh, my devotions in the book of Revelation, so kind of the Old Testament, the New Testament apocalypse. And earlier in the week, I was reading from Revelation 2, and I was struck by, uh, in the first church that's addressed, Ephesus, you have this church that is theologically robust, yet they've forgotten their first love. They've Mm -hmm. walked away from God. And interestingly enough, uh, Jesus, through John, tells them, hey, how you get that love back is to do the works you did at first, Mm -hmm. which isn't to put on them this legalistic, like, do works and you'll earn my love, Mm -hmm. but rather what Jesus is essentially pointing to is, like, that theology you believe, live in light of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you live out that theology, you will grow in humility and you'll grow in love for me. And it just kind of brings up the old adage that you hear again and again from a good seminary professor, that it's, if your theology doesn't terminate in humility and worship, it's not good theology. Bingo. Yeah. Um, I, I love that point. I'm, I'm somebody who uh, struggles a lot with pride, so I found this sermon and just meditating on this text uh, really helpful. Um, I do want to get to something else, though, in the text uh, that you brought out in your sermon, which I think uh, it would be easy to miss to a certain extent in the text, uh, but it's an important point, and that's you point out that many of the commentators believe Nebuchadnezzar was converted, mm-hmm. and that's a pretty big issue given that uh, I think for us, so we are our New Covenant believers, and we live in wake of a clear gospel 
proclamation. Jesus shows up, he proclaims the gospel, he lives, he dies, he resurrects, and then Paul and the other biblical authors, they write down what was being taught and how we should live. But here in the Old Testament, we don't have a clear gospel proclamation that we can point to and go, yeah, that guy believes that Jesus is king. Uh, so when you when you see Nebuchadnezzar's conversion in this text, what are, what? well, actually, let me rewind. Would you define conversion for us or give us an understanding of it and then point out what do you see in the text that tells you Nebuchadnezzar experienced conversion? Yeah, so in its most rudimentary form, um, conversion uh, would be this idea from John chapter 3 that Jesus says being born again. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, what Ephesians 2 talks about coming out of death and mm-hmm. into life. Um, that's what its most basic form conversion is, a new life. Um, And as Christians, we believe that conversion happens through two things, repentance and belief. And, um, you know, there are lots of signs to to, to answer the the question of, okay, well, Old Testament people like Abraham Mm -hmm. um, or Isaac or Jacob, like, how how are they saved? Right. Well, the answer is the same for us. Um, we're all saved only through Christ dying on the cross for our sins. Mm-hmm. Um, even though they didn't have that in the Old Testament yet, mm-hmm. um, they did um, trust in the promises of God. And right. they did um, repent uh, of things. They mm-hmm. repented of their sins. Um, they they had the Old Testament sacrificial system that paved the way for them to understand what atonement was like um, and what, you know, redemption was like. And they trusted in the promises of God, mm-hmm. but it's still Christ who saves them from their sins right. ultimately. So while we don't have a clear um, proclamation from, from Nebuchadnezzar that I trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and <laughs> Savior... Yeah. Um, there are elements of of conversion that we see here. Um, number one, uh, in the first three verses, which um, the rest of, of chapter four is kind of a flashback to how he got to this point, but um, chapter chapter four, verses one through three, he, um, yes, it is, I mentioned it's a universal proclamation and it's mm-hmm. very public, but it's also personal. Um Verse 2, he says, It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Right. So this is something personal, um, which is distinctly different from what we've seen in chapters 1 through 3. I think there's also something that we can say about that for our culture. You know, it's it's not uncommon uh, for Christians to share their testimony with friends or neighbors or something like that. And it's also not uncommon for them to receive back something along the lines of, that's great for you. you right. Uh, and one of the things you know is that when you've done that, the message you were trying to get across with sharing your story was not received mm-hmm. because it's this true for you, not for me kind of thing happening here. But that's not happening with Nebuchadnezzar. Right. No, he, in chapters one through three... Um, essentially has had that response. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, you know, this is good for, for Daniel's God or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's right. God, their God, this or that. Mm-hmm. Here he's personalizing it and saying, 
like the most high God has done for me. Even the fact that he's calling him the most high God is significant. Putting him above Marduk, who we saw. <laughs> right. And himself. Up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So mm-hmm. I think that mm-hmm. is a really positive sign. Um, but at least he, he's moving it in the right direction here. Mm-hmm. Um, so how great are his signs? How mighty are his wonders? His kingdom, speaking of the most high God, his mm-hmm. kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So he's mm-hmm. acknowledging some some true things about God that go against what we know that that he was pushing for in chapters one through three. Right. Um, so that's that's a positive sign. And then he tells how all of this came to pass with his, you know, pride leading him to a fall and then being restored. And then at the end of the chapter, um, ver- starting in verse 34, it breaks back into Nebuchadnezzar speaking in the first person. And it says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. So, again, that's another phrase that I think is significant. He is not looking um, to his left or to his right. He's not looking at himself. He's looking up at at God at this point. Mm -hmm. Which is also contrasted with, as you pointed out in your sermon, him looking down Uh from his palace earlier. So you have this sort of directional contrast between the telling of the story when he's not converted and now here at the end. So there's something different going on. Mm -hmm. I I think back to um, chapter 3 when Mm -hmm. he built this 90-foot statue of himself. Um, Generally a good sign you're not converted. Right. So 90-foot gold statue of himself. Think about all of the people that were surrounding that. Where would Mm -hmm. they have had to look... Um, to mm-hmm. worship that. They would have looked up. Looked up at mm-hmm. who? Him. Him, mm-hmm. his image. Yeah. Um, here, Nebuchadnezzar is lifting his eyes to heaven, looking up at God in the same way that the people would have had to look up to worship him mm. in chapter three. So this is distinctly different. Mm-hmm. Um, so I lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high. There it is again. He's calling him the most high mm-hmm. um, and praised and honored him who lives forever. Um, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. So he repeats what he said in verse uh, one through three, his kingdom endures from generation to generation. So it's acknowledging God as eternal. Mm -hmm. And again, um, this is distinctly different from chapter two. He had this vision of this statue um, that would crumble and Mm -hmm. he didn't want that. So he created his own statue. Mm -hmm. Chapter three. Here he's acknowledging that Mm -hmm. his kingdom, God's kingdom um, endures from generation to generation. So that's an acknowledgement mm-hmm. of his own, um, uh, I guess, submission to the dream of chapter two. Mm-hmm. Verse 35 is key as well. He not only acknowledges that God is the most supreme, but he acknowledges that humanity is not. He says, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. So there's this acknowledgement of um you know, his, his depravity in, in one sense. Mm. Um, when he looks up at God, he realizes that he's nothing and that all the inhabitants of the earth are nothing mm-hmm. compared to God. And so, again, these are kind of markers to me of a changed mind. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of repentance in, in the New Testament, metanoia, mm-hmm. um, a change of, of mind. Yeah, um, I, I see evidence of that here in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And then he goes on, speaking of God, the Most High, he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can say, stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So there's an acknowledgement here, not only um, of God 
um, being supreme, but of his, his sovereignty over mm-hmm. all things. And he acknowledges that we don't get to question God. Mm-hmm. Um, that is very different than chapters one through three in the posture of, of Nebuchadnezzar. So to me, there is, is really good evidence that his head and his heart are changed at, at this point in the text. Yeah, and to throw a couple more things in there, look at the uh, effusiveness in the text of his praise. So verse 34, I blessed the Most High, followed by, and praised and honored him. Mm-hmm. And then verse 37, uh, praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, just like you said, um, acknowledging that there's no question here of who's in charge, for all his works are right and his ways are just. Uh, and then he admits... Those who walk in pride, speaking of himself, like you said in your sermon, he is able to humble because he's yep. speaking of his own experience there. I think, too, like just <laughs> something that I would point out, uh, at the end of, of chapter 3 and at the end of chapter 2, um, if I'm remembering correct, um, Nebuchadnezzar tries to kind of do a good deed to cover up his bad deed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like the balanced diet. I right. ate a bunch of pizza, so tomorrow for lunch I'm having a salad and everything balances out. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I pointed out in the sermon that that's not how the gospel works, mm-hmm. that we can never do enough good deeds to earn God's favor or mm-hmm. to earn salvation in any way. I mean, it's only through faith in Christ, repentance, turning from our sin and trusting in Christ. Well, here at the end of chapter four, we don't see anything like that where he tries to do a good deed to paper over a a bad deed. Mm -hmm. He just seems humbled, and he's praising God. Yeah, and in effect, um, one of the things that I love about Scripture is to look at the literary aspects of it, to see how somebody puts something together. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, when you on this coming Sunday preach on Daniel 5, you're going to be preaching on a different king. Yep. Uh, Because Daniel closes the book on Nebuchadnezzar here at the end of chapter 4, which historically is weird Mm -hmm. because this is Nebuchadnezzar coming back into his power, coming back into things going well in the kingdom, and he's historically going to continue on and do some great things before the king we encounter in chapter 5. So why close the book on him? Well, Nebuchadnezzar's story is done Mm -hmm. because he has come to the place of submitting himself to the true king of kings. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. the Most High rules the kingdom of men. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's repeated multiple times in chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar comes to understand that, mm-hmm. and then we don't hear anything else about him. Yeah, uh, There's 23 years, I believe, between chapters 4 and chapters 5. So there's other things that are going on in Nebuchadnezzar's right. life after this, but Daniel doesn't include it. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it, it doesn't get to the point that he's trying to make. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, uh, yeah, literarily another reason why I think he's converted, that this is the climax of Nebuchadnezzar's story. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't matter what else he did in the kingdom from this point forward. Like, the point is that God was sovereign even over Nebuchadnezzar. Right. And I want to just make one point about that before we move on to um, resources, which uh, people can look at to learn more about these things. And that's, um, I'm really encouraged in trying to participate in evangelism because of this. Because you have now three pretty major stories of Nebuchadnezzar interacting with Daniel, Mm -hmm. uh, in which Daniel uh, comes off very, very positively, and God shows up when Daniel's faithful, and you have these amazing things happen, and yet you have Nebuchadnezzar not converted until his own humiliation and restoration. Mm -hmm. Which God does. Yeah, which God does. And so you have, I mean... 
there's a way in which we could look at Daniel 1 through 3 to say, if this depends on Daniel's ability, even even God working through Daniel isn't going to get Nebuchadnezzar to convert. God has to do a specific thing with Nebuchadnezzar in order for that to happen. Yeah, we could say that Daniel is like one of the best and one of the boldest evangelists mm-hmm. ever. Yeah. And yet, like, even that doesn't convert Nebuchadnezzar. It takes a work of God for right. that to happen. Right. So in light of that and uh, the rest of what we've talked about, what are some good resources which people can look to uh, in order to learn more about this or in order to dive deeper onto these subjects? Yeah, we've mentioned a book multiple times that I would just briefly throw out again, a little yellow book called Conversion by Michael Lawrence. Um, I won't say any more than that since we've already mentioned it. But another book, um, it's by a guy named David F. Wells, and it's called Turning to God. And the subtitle is Reclaiming Christian Conversion as Unique, Necessary, and Supernatural. And I think that um, gets at a lot of what we're talking about, understanding what true biblical conversion is, um, why it's unique, necessary, and supernatural. Um, so if you uh, like to read on this type of stuff, David F. Wells, Turning to God. Um, another, you know, kind of bigger book, um, if you really like to read and like to read hard stuff, uh, Jonathan Edwards' um, Religious Affections uh, It's one of his most famous works. And it's just Edwards wrestling with this idea, um, seeing people coming and hearing his preaching and being affected by it and wondering whether they're truly converted or whether this is just emotionalism. Mm -hmm. So Religious Affections by Jonathan Edwards, a good, um, thick, meaty book on the the topic of true Christian conversion. Um, And then a smaller book, it's more of a pamphlet. Um, It's by Ian Murray, and it's called The Invitation System. And it's just a very quick look at our modern day church services and how we assess conversion. Mm -hmm. Um, Is it someone walking an aisle? Is it someone praying a prayer? Is it someone raising a hand or is it something different? Mm -hmm. And so it's Murray kind of wrestling with um, the topics that we were talking about. Um, No, it's none of those things. It's repentance Mm -hmm. and belief. And so how do we gauge whether someone's converted or not? Highly, highly recommend The Invitation System by Ian Murray. So just two more things to add on to that then, and these ones are very brief. Um, they could also be described as pamphlets, uh, but The Art of Turning by Kevin DeYoung, uh, just a, a really brief, uh, I believe it's a sermon of his printed uh, in book form, but really brief exposition of what conversion looks like. Uh, so that would, would go along with the Lawrence book. Uh, And then The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness by Tim Keller, which is a phenomenal book just um, on pride and humility uh, and our ability to look to God rather than ourselves. Uh, So with those, I think we've got uh, a lot which people can look at in order to engage these topics and much more. And uh, so we'll wrap up then and just say thanks for joining us. uh, And I hope you guys enjoy your week. Yeah, have a good day. 